As you turn to John chapter 1, I add my word of greeting to those you've already heard in the beautiful name, the highest name, the lovely name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm very happy to worship the living God through him with you here in Germantown this morning. I propose that we spend this time, these three Sundays, talking about God. That's kind of a novel thing in contemporary churches. I'm grateful that it's not novel in this church. We're going to see in verses 1 through 5 some rather deep things about God, things so deep we're not, we're not used to wading into. We like to sort of um, piddle around on, on the shallow ends of things. It's quite normal. We'll, we'll have to really by an act of the will and by God's grace, surrender our minds to, to turn aside from the frivolities and trivialities of, of sports, food and drink and, and uh, leisure and recreation and the secular pursuits that occupy about 99% of our consciousness to focus on God. Um, Without apology, the subject is theology. The word theology means the study of God. If we say I'm not interested in theology, it's the very same thing as saying I'm not interested in God. If you say, well, let's just be practical, let's just love Jesus, well, the response to that is which Jesus? The, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who's uh, a created angel? The, the Jesus of the Mormons, who wasn't always God. The Jesus of the Muslims, who didn't die on the cross. You see, the, the, only, the only way you discover which Jesus, Jesus to love or, or to worship is through theology, which is the truth about God. You say, well, you know, I'm really not the, the, the theological type. The man who wrote these words was accused by the Jewish leaders, of being agromatoi kai idiotai. You can even figure it out if you only know English from the Greek. Agromatoi, without letters. Idiotai, I think you know what, our, what word comes from that. The man has no training. The man hasn't been to school. He returned from an evangelistic campaign in Samaria, and he, uh, along with his brother, because the response was not sufficient, he said, Lord, can we call down fire on them now? That's the kind of person he was by temperament. And yet, he talks about love more times in his gospel than all the other gospel writers put together. How did he become the apostle of love, transformed from somebody who wanted to kill everybody because they didn't respond to his message? How did he come to write such profound theology? And I would submit that the verses we're going to read this morning constitute the most profound theology in the history of writing. How did he become profound? Well, you know, there were circles of intimacy around the Lord Jesus Christ. There was the multitude. There were the 70. There were the 12. There were the three. He was one of the three. And there was the one who put his head on Jesus' breast and kept it there. That's how he became profound. That's how he became someone who was obsessed with love instead of retaliation and violence. He got close to Jesus, and he stayed there. We hope we can get a little closer to Jesus because we study this morning what that man wrote. Just one or two other words of introduction. 
Paul, I, I want to spend three Sundays if God allows in, in John chapter 1. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, says this, you know, the Jews, they really want a sign from God. They want God to intervene in the world, God's intervention. Those Greeks, they want wisdom from God. They want God's interpretation of the world. The Jews want God to show them something. The Greeks want God to explain something to them. The Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. So the Greeks want Sophia. The Jews want a sign. In John chapter 1, in the first half of the chapter, we see Jesus as the Logos, God's explanation. There was a Greek scholar translating Aristotle. He said, you know, we need to translate the word Logos not simply as word, which is the way it's translated in most English versions, but as explanation. Jesus is God's interpretation of the world. That's the first half of John 1. In the second half of John 1, verse 29, verse 35, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb. So in the first half, he's the Logos of God. Second half, he's the Lamb of God. He is first wisdom, the explanation, the interpretation to the Greeks. He is secondly, the intervention, the sign, God's sacrifice, which he sent for the Jews. He's both in one person. So we want to explore that in the next three weeks. It's almost pure theology in the first five verses. In honor of God and his word, let's stand just for another minute as we read from the text. John chapter 1, verse 1. Hear the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd send that light to shine on us right now. We ask it through your Spirit. We ask it in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. first thing we notice are the words in the beginning, and of course it's an obvious echo, the very same three words which begin our English Bibles back in Genesis 1. If you read a commentary on the Gospel of John, probably the majority of scholars will say that the same time frame is being referenced as Genesis 1-1, because the words are exactly the same. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, Call the Septuagint. The words of Genesis 1 1 are exactly the same as the words of John 1 1. That's a powerful argument, and I can't prove it's wrong, but I think it's wrong. I, uh, I'm not a scholar, I'm a student just like you are, but I don't think it's referencing the tame, same time frame. I think it's referencing something way earlier. You don't just determine what a passage means from the, the, what you find in the Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. Context is a major determinant of meaning. And the context suggests something far earlier than the creation of the physical cosmos. The beginning reference in John 1.1 is not a reference to terrestrial beginnings. It's a reference to celestial beginnings. That is, to eternity. That is, 
the beginning without beginning. This is one of the hardest things that we have in understanding God. And of course, we can't understand God. We can, our minds are too small. He's infinite, we're finite. We can fill our minds with God just as we can fill uh, a, a teacup with ocean water. And the teacup is full, but there's plenty of ocean left. And we can spend our entire lives learning about God, but there's plenty of God left that we haven't comprehended. And the fact is, we cannot imagine anything without a beginning. I don't know why it's harder to imagine something without a beginning than it is to imagine something without an end, but it is, isn't it? God is a noun which cannot be modified by the word before. God is a reality which cannot be modified by the word after. There is no before God, and there is no after God. This is a reference to eternity past. In the beginning, there was the Logos. There was the Word. Some scholars, D.A. Carson, one of our greatest living Greek scholars, he believes that uh, John searched for this Word and came up with the Word because uh, Jesus is the way God wanted to say something. Why were words created? So that God could say something to us. And Jesus was what God wanted to say, so John calls him Word. Um, B.B. Warfield, who died in 1921, a great scholar at Princeton, he said that John didn't find the word, but that it was a common designation for Jesus among Christians of the first century. Professor Warfield makes that argument because he says John doesn't explain himself. He just calls Jesus Logos and goes on. So he said if it were a new terminology, he would have explained himself. He didn't explain himself. He assumed that his readers would know who he was talking about. The first thing we see about the Logos is his eternality. Jesus is eternal. He's always been there in the beginning with God. We see so his eternality. We see next his individuality. He was with God. There is a distinction in the Godhead. There are two things we must never do according to ancient formula. We must never confound the persons. In other words, we can't mix up the persons. We can't act like God the Father is exactly the same as God the Son, as exactly the same as God the Spirit. We don't confound, we don't confuse the persons. Neither do we divide the substance. Neither do we speak or think as if the Holy Spirit is not the same God as, as God the Father, that God the Son is not the same God as God the Father and God the Son. Of course, all three persons are the same God, one God. That same professor Carson was at McGill University in Montreal as a graduate student, and he was challenged by a Muslim mathematician. And they were sitting at the table, and Don Carson was trying to witness to him, and and he was objecting to the Trinity, saying, you Christians are polytheists, and Don Carson said, we're not. And so the man got three cups and put them on the table in front of Don Carson. He said, this is one cup, right? He said, right. This is another cup, right? Right. This is a third cup, right? So you got three cups, right? Right. Well, God the Father is God, right? Right. God the Son is God, right? Right. God the Spirit is God, right? Right. Well, why don't you have three gods? Professor Carson's response was this. When you have three 
infinities. How many infinities do you have? You see, God the Father is an infinite person. God the Son is an infinite person. God the Spirit is an infinite person. And there can only be one infinity. Now, I'm not trying to divest the mathematics of the Trinity from their mystery. I'm just saying that helps, doesn't it? We're talking about infinite personalities. We see the eternality. We see the individuality. He is with God. God has a companion. God has a fellow. God has an equal. God has a peer. And the word was God. So we see the eternity, the individuality, and the deity of the Logos. Now before we leave it, I want to just show you two photographs. And the first photograph is a, little, is a photograph of a little boy. He's eight years old in that photo. That's a photo taken in 1935. Now, he's not a father. He can't be a father. He's too young. We learn when we get to verse 14, we'll talk about this next week, when we get to verses 14 and verses 18, that the Logos is a son who has a father. That little eight-year-old boy is not a father. He's too young to be a father. In the next photo, we see the same little boy grown to young manhood. The first photo was taken in 1935. The second photo was taken in 1951. You notice three differences. One difference is now he's a father, okay? Second difference is he doesn't look the same. The third difference is he's not alone. Now, first of all, this is all we ever see in human experience. It's not quite the same as divine reality. We see this in time, and time changes us. Time does not change God. God is eternal. So what am I trying to say? There's never been a picture of God the Father without God the Son. There's never been a time before God was a father. There's never been a time when God did not have a son. And there's never been a time when God did not look exactly like the son and the son did not look exactly like the father. In this picture, there's a father and a son, but they look different. They have to look different. You notice the father, he's a very handsome young man. The baby is just a, well, just a baby. And uh, certain alarming features are already presenting themselves. You know, it's actually quite a, quite a large baby and uh, quite a kind of bulky, big-headed baby there. And you've probably already guessed that that's my dad. And he's holding uh, that big baby in his arms. But you see, uh, if, eternity means this. If you go a billion times a trillion years into the past, God is not young. God does not have a black beard. 
If you go a billion times a trillion years into the future, God is not old. God does not have a white beard. Time and age have nothing to do with God. They don't impact him. They don't affect him at all. He affects time and age. Time and age does not affect him. There's never been a time when God was not a father. That's why Isaiah 9, 6 talks about the everlasting father. That's why the son is given. He's already a son. He's always been a son. And this is the truth about the eternal logos who's incarnated, as we'll talk about next week in verse 14, as the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the beginning with God. We see in verse, you can take the photos down now, we can see in verse 3, the industry of the Logos. First, the eternity, then the individuality, then the deity. Now, the industry or the activity or the productivity of the Logos. He made everything. There's a parallel passage in Colossians 1. Just like there's a parallel passage to the first two verses in Hebrews 1, there's a parallel passage to this verse in Colossians 1. Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him. Hang with me, please, for just a minute. Let's go a little bit deeper. Hang with me. It's very uh, easy to assume that God gave us the gospel to help us understand the world. That's a very likely and human assumption. It's also very false. God did not give us the gospel to help us understand the world. Hang with me. God gave us the world to help us understand the gospel. Are you with me? How can I say that? Well, I say that for a very simple reason. The gospel was here first. The gospel existed before the world existed. Before there was ever a material universe, there was God, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, living, loving, relating, purposing, planning, predestinating. I'm glad I can say that word, Grace of Anna. I have no qualms to say it here. Some churches I can't say it. Predestinating. God. Planning your salvation, our redemption, through the blood on Calvary, all of that. Before in Spurgeon's purple prose, the fan of a single, the, the wing of a single angel ever fanned the unnavigated sky. There was the gospel. So God creates a, a, a network of realities to teach us the gospel. It's one reason we have fathers and sons, to help us teach, to help us understand the gospel. The Logos made everything. Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him, according to Colossians chapter 1 and according to John chapter 1. In him was life, verse 4, and that life was the light of men. What does that mean? In the life of the Logos, the Logos is a person. The Logos is a living person. He's alive. The Logos is God. 
In his life, we have light casts on our lives. Here's what that means. We can never understand what we are. Never mind who we are. We can never understand what we are apart from the light cast by his life. His life was the light of men and women, of humanity. It's very difficult to define the human apart from the revelation of God in Holy Scripture and in his Son, Christ Jesus. Many misguided people just in the last couple of months have been celebrating the bicentennial of uh, Marx's birth, that miserable, miserable, unemployable quack whose life has caused the suffering, whose philosophies caused the suffering of so many people. I've lived uh, 20 years of my life in post-Marxist societies, in such a blight. So many wounds have been left. So many um, lives have been wrecked. The Marxists say that the key to understanding man is the class struggle, economics. That's false. The fascists say the key to understanding man is race. That's false. The Darwinians say the key to understanding man is biology. What is the human? Merely the latest edition of evolution. That's false. The Freudians say the key to understanding the human is psychosexual. That's false. The Bible says the key to understanding what we are is the Logos, the God-man, God's own Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. How do we explain the human? What are we? The Bible says we're fallen image bearers. Do you see the explanatory power of that? Do you ever ask yourself the question, how do Christians, some Christians, do such terrible things? Well, about 90% of the time, it's because they're not real Christians. But let's, it, let's be honest. Sometimes real Christians do terrible things. How do we explain that? We explain that because we're all fallen. We don't become unfallen when we're born again. We're still fallen. We still have an enormous capacity to sin if we walk in the flesh. How do we explain how unbelievers do so many noble and generous and good things? And they do, you know. Let's don't ever deny that. Well, it's because whether they're regenerate or not, they're still made in the image of God. That image was cracked by the fall, but it's still intact according to James. So you see, we have an explanation. We, all of us, are fallen image bearers who can only be rescued, who can only be remedied, who can only be restored, by a wounded healer. And that wounded healer is Christ. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Verse 5. I'm going to talk for the rest of our time together a little bit about the darkness. Sometimes the darkness comes from false religions. 
like the false religions I just mentioned a moment ago, which teach lies about the Logos, about Christ. Sometimes the darkness comes from false science, that kind of science which is falsely called science. True science is wonderful. There's a compulsion, though, among secular scientists to leave God out and to say that there is no God. The reason for that is pride. Because, you see, if they have to appeal to a supernatural agent to explain what they're trying to prove, then that's not science. So they want to leave God out of things. And I want to I say um, that my main problem with atheism is that it's too religious. It's way too religious for me. It requires too much faith. And it's not just religious, it's the most primitive religion called idolatry. And it's even a more primitive pre-religion called magic. And I want to try to prove that in just a minute. What is idolatry? Idolatry is when you assign to a thing, something without a mind, without a brain, when you assign to a thing a supernatural quality. So when we say mother nature, that's idolatry. When we say natural selection, that's idolatry. We're using nature as a substitute for God. We're making nature into an idol. And we're saying that nature does things which only God can do. Nature wisely provides. How many times has that ever been printed in National Geographic? You see, this is idolatry, pure and simple. Now, I, I even said magic. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We are now riding on a huge spheroid divided latitudinally into 24 time zones. My church had services eight hours ago. This spheroid, even though mass is actually more uh, accurate than weight, because you can't really talk about weight unless you've got a gravitational field and the earth is its own gravitational field, but they do it mathematically. The weight of the spheroid is a thousand times a trillion metric tons, which is, of course, unimaginable. This spheroid moves perpetually in three dynamics. We orbit, and that's what causes years. We reach an extremity of orbiting, and then we curve and come back to the same place we came from. We tilt. That produces, of course, seasons. And we tilt to a certain extremity, and then we return and tilt in the other direction to another extremity, and then we stop, and of course, this happens perpetually, and obviously we rotate, making day and night. And if it weren't for even one of these three movements, we could have never lived on this planet. But we do subsist and exist in these three perpetual movements, and we are suspended even though we weigh a thousand trillion metric tons. Now, the question is why? Oh, that's easy. Gravity. Gravity is not an explanation. Gravity is a description. Gravity 
for the atheist is a magic word which serves as a substitute for the word God. Our star is 93 million miles away. It takes eight, sec- uh, eight minutes for its light to reach this planet. And that yellow or clear light touches the brown earth and green things spring up. And that's the way we stay alive. Why? Oh, photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is not an explanation. Photosynthesis is a description. Photosynthesis is a magic word. The water, clean water, falls from the sky, and we drink it, and we make it dirty, and then it goes back to the sky where it's laundered, and then it comes right back to us, just like a waiter. How do we explain that? Oh, that's the uh, hydrological cycle. That's evaporation. That's condescension. Those are not explanations. Those are descriptions. Those are magic words to keep us from uttering the true explanation, the swear word. For the secularists, G O D. But you see, the dark the darkness would have you believe there are real God substitutes. There are not. One of the favorite explanations of how life got here now is the multiverse. That's the fairy tale that. Stephen Hawking believed just before he died. He doesn't believe it now. As if that explained anything. As if all of reality were one gigantic womb just proliferating universes, just spewing them out in endless number. As if that causes to, us to escape the great question, where does life come from? Now, I'm going to end with this. And um, if if anybody, Christian or non-Christian, believes that this is an unfair analogy, or if it's a straw man, I want you to come tell me. Because if it's not fair, I don't want to use it anymore. And I've asked that question in more than one country, in front of more than one atheist, and no one has even, the only person who's ever challenged me on it was a girl in Germany who was supposed to be a Christian. And her challenge was very unconvincing. But I want to show you two things before we leave here. I want to show you two photographs. One is a photograph of probably the most famous statue in the world. Maybe the thinker is more famous, but this statue, which is in the Uffizi in Florence, is probably the most famous statue in the world. This is, this is the David. What is the David? The David is, is a piece of stone and a little bit of metal, a little bit of pigmentation. It's, it's, it's something cold and lifeless, something without a mind. That's the first image. Let's put the second image up there. We're not exactly sure uh, what he looked like. He lived in the 15th century, but we think that's a, a, a good likeness of Michelangelo. Michelangelo is the artist who created the David. If you dialogue with an atheist, you say to him, you can't account for anything. You can't tell me where the universe comes from. He will counter with this. He will say, but you can't tell me where God comes from. You can't account for God. 
So we're tied. We have an equivalent problem. Let's talk about something else. The answer to that is no, 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 no. The problems are not equivalent. You've got a big problem. I have no problem at all. First of all, they deny the concept of an uncreated creator. God is not from anywhere. He is. He is the ultimate reality. He didn't have to be from somewhere. There was nothing before him. But you see, what the atheist is pleading is that it's just as likely as that, that something like the statue, something dead, something cold, something without a brain, something without a capacity to think or plan, would accidentally, over time, produce someone like the artist, someone capable of intentionality and design. If there's no God, there's no creator. If there's no creator, there's no designer. If there's no designer, there's no design. If there's no design, there's no purpose, because purpose is a function of design. If there's no purpose, there's no meaning, because meaning is a function of purpose. But there is meaning, isn't there? You wouldn't have known what time to come to church if there weren't meaning. You wouldn't know how to read if there weren't meaning. You wouldn't understand language if there weren't meaning. If there's meaning, there must be purpose because meaning is a function of purpose. If there's purpose, there must be design because purpose is a function of design. If there's design, there must be a designer. If there's a designer, there must be a creator. If there's a creator, there must be God. Now, who would believe that it's more likely that some things like the statue something without mind, would accidentally bump together over time and randomly create someone like the artist, like the sculptor. Who could possibly believe that that was more likely? And yet the darkness boasts of it. The darkness accuses us of believing fairy tales. The darkness accuses us of being primitive. Agramatoi kai idiotai, ignorant and untrained. Professor, uh, Professor Hawking famously said, there's no afterlife for broken down computers. Uh, heaven is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. Well, I would like to ask Professor Hawking, although he's been, he knows the answer better than I now, I'd like to ask him, uh, how do computers create themselves? And John Lennox said, atheism is a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the light. When we ask the question, who would believe that random lifeless material forces would have created the reality from which the sonnets of Shakespeare, the fugues of Bach, and the novels of Tolstoy have come. 
Who would have believed that that was more likely than that the living God, the supreme creator, the consummate artist, would have created a lesser reality than himself and creatures far less than himself? The Bible answers the question, who would believe that? The question is answered in Psalm 14. The question is answered in Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. If you're here today and you don't have assurance of salvation, let me just remind you that believing in God does not gain forgiveness for sins. It doesn't gain you the gift of eternal life. The devil believes in God. Demons believe, and they do tremble. They knew who Jesus was, and they recognized him before the Jewish leaders recognized him. It's only trusting in the provision that God made for your sin and my sin, our rebellion, our offenses, our unbelief. It's only taken taking the payment that God made for that unbelief, which grants us eternal life. Won't you believe this gospel, that there's one God who made heaven and earth, that Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, the eternal Logos became flesh, was born and lived and died on this planet, suffering for your sin and my sin? Won't you accept that as payment? for your sin. Will you go into eternity without a payment for sin? Will you chance it? Perish not, I beg you, but believe and receive. Know this pardon today and be sure, according to God's own covenant and promise, we beg you for Christ's sake. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful room with a perfect temperature. We pray for those who languish and worship in places not so beautiful, not so safe, not so comfortable. We think of them. We think of those who would sit in a place like this and not believe, even with all these wonderful advantages. Lord, we can only make the appeal from the outside in. We can only plead with frail human effort. We uh, ask you, Lord, to work a work from the inside out. We thank you for getting them here. Pray that you get them into your kingdom. This moment, we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.